Hey, it's Tia Carrere, and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys. <laughs> Love for sale. That was the one where you had to you had to look. It was like Where's Dildo? Do you remember that? I, I can't say I've really played any of the Legend Street Larry games sufficiently to comment. It was um, it's really the first time actually I realised my love of hidden object games was that when did that come out? I was going to say ninety six, ninety seven. Mm-hmm, so I would have mm-hmm. been I would have been like fourteen or fifteen playing a game with like cartoon boobs in. Yeah, and like, like so and it was like you're do, looking for dildos instead of like just clues and stuff. Like that. Yeah, but um, it was I remember that being actually good. You know, like having. For, for a teenager, kind of like Kevin Smith films, I suppose. Right. Um, we're, we're, not good um, anymore. <laughs> well, saying that, we were having that conversation the other day, and, our, and and obviously Ben said, oh, well, you know, what about Dogman? I said, well, that isn't one I actually haven't revisited, and that was my favourite. Okay. But I watched I watched more rats, and I was so dispirited by it that I thought, yeah, oh, it's hard work. I, I, I don't think, I don't know if dispirited is the right word, because it, it was, it was totally, totally fine for how I was at that age. And I assume yes. which how a lot of people in like 2007 viewed super bad. Like if you were that age, then it's, yes, it would be perfect, with. I guess. Yeah. Because it reflects, it's a reflection of you. I mean, it's remarkable that Kevin Smith was able to tap into his 14 year old self and make that film quite so effectively. Wow. Um, I think yeah. that Refle- reflections of you is also probably my favorite dream theater album. <laughs> Kevin Smith reflections. Um, <clears throat> so, what are we doing today? Then we just talk about films. Anyone yeah, died? Just... <laughs> no, no one's. No, no one's, one's died, died since our last. That's lucky, isn't it? Hang on, let's just say it has. Well, a few wrestlers have died, which has it's been harsh. Okay. Um, any of the in fact, movies? Yeah. Yes. Terry huh? Funk. Okay. Do you remember T- Terry Funk was part of one of the best scenes in in Patrick Swayze's Roadhouse, where. Oh you know, yeah. He's a, there's obviously that film Sam Elliott has a limp in it and um yeah. and there's a bit it had to involve Sam Elliott in some way didn't it Sam Elliott's here in that film is this like iron curtain it's so fantastic <laughs> so it's one of those like he runs his hands through it and it all just falls back into the exact same place um and yeah and there's a bit where he gets into a fight with like a load of guys he's just like a bouncer but he's so sort of lean and scrawny and he just the first thing he does is kick i think it's terry funk actually they get into a fight and he's clearly outnumbered but he's just hardcore and he kicks terry funk's knee sideways and his legs snap oh, sideways yeah. and he screams <laughs> and then sam Elliott goes hurts like hell don't it <laughs> and uh, i just thought oh, what a line that's a, that's a classic film though so yeah terry funk suddenly passed away i think he was in some other films i think he was in a lot of frank stallone films okay so um i'm not i only know frank stallone from i think he was the bartender in Barfly, 86, of Charles oh, McCann. Right. Yeah. But, um, say, so yeah, Terry Funk has died. Who else has died? No. Probably a lot of people, but William you... Freakin's already dead, so he can't die again. <laughs> he's, he's, he's so talented, he might find a way. I have to say that, I know this is, welcome, Reverend, to Kino Kingdom. This is a bit of a freewheeling start. 78, 79, what's 78, this? 78, I believe. Um, oh, it's my age. And IQ. And I, I just... I was just thinking about um, uh, there's been a bit of a gap between episodes, holidays and stuff like that. But I still 
because of like the rush to do this, I I still feel ill prepared. So I do apologise to everyone, to the listeners, for the sort of rushed start. I just um, we just had episodes. Yeah. I'm just I'm just looking at um, yeah people who died. Um, one second. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna let my I'm gonna let Bukowski out before I blow my brains out. She's just meowing in the background. Come on, Tess. Just letting, actually letting Charles Bukowski out of the room. If I, if I lived with Charles, I was, uh, we were talking about this before me, if you had a werewolf for a pet, mm-hmm. but then it, it would it'd literally just be a naked man for 30 of the 31 days. <laughs> so like a naked man living with you. And then you'd say, how many, how many sugars in your tea, Charles? And you turn around, he's on the kitchen. turn again. Yeah. He's on the we're not watching Dog Soldiers again. We'll watch Howl. Um I'm just <laughs> looking Oh there's a, there was I'm looking at deaths on Wikipedia in twenty twenty three. 11th of September there was someone called Point Given died, but it was a it's a thoroughbred racehorse. Okay, yeah. That probably makes sense. I'm just yeah, there's no one I don't want to say anyone of, of worth, but no one that we can really discuss because I mean, yeah, not, I, not that we're yearning for anyone to die so we got content. You know, that's not it, how things work. It's, it's not. It's sad that don't get me wrong that Gunter Schlivka died, but we can't really talk about German Olympic weightlifters on this show. We have to. Uh, you'd be surprised. Uh, no, so I'm just going to say that since we lasted the last episode a couple of weeks ago, no one died, which is nice. Um, so yeah, I've got a few films, including. Uh, we were very kindly sent a screener of Barbie to watch. Right. And I don't, I don't know if you, <clears throat> in our little WhatsApp chat, you saw it pop up because it came in and I thought, uh, seems like one for Rupert to be honest. And um, yeah, and then I did I very briefly see it pop up and then it was. <laughs> and then I thought, no, because Faye's going to really, really want to watch this. Yes. <clears throat> and then I was also reminded that Ryan Gosling was in it. Um, mm-hmm. We'll talk about Ryan Gosling and Margot Robbie later on because. It just just want to talk about um, the, the rules of attraction uh, because I, it's really both my thoughts may differ from other men's. Um, okay. Okay. The straight other straight men's. Um, so yeah, I've got a couple of films to, to talk about, and we've obviously got the Arkansas. Um, and I did have a couple of things I wanted to sort of touch on before we went in, into sure, the movies, sure. if that's okay. <clears throat> what I thought was an interesting. Something in well, what I found interesting happened the other day. Uh, we were on holiday, and um, Faye was telling me that her no, it was one of her friends' children, who is I think he's eight. Mm-hmm. Um, he watched. He was over a friend's house, and mm-hmm. they watched. They watched something, and and uh, she didn't know about this. And then when he came back, he was kind of trembly and saying weird things. And then when he went to bed, he was just distraught she's really really upset and she said what, what's wrong what's happened today and he said oh my friend made me watch a horror film and <clears throat> it wasn't a horror film it was a horror short film called siren head and i watched it on my phone like that moment out of just and it's it's kind of a it's it's a silly short horror where there's a guy and he's in the it looks like in some sort of mountainous range and he hears this this foghorn and then when he looks over the the hillock near him um it's this huge, like hundreds feet tall, kind of weird monster with like a siren for a face that just constantly yes. running after him full pelt. And and Jesus. I find it like a little bit silly. It, it it's not really frightening. But then I'm up, you know, I'm nearly forty, so I'm desensitized to these things. But what it made me think about was, 
it put me in the frame of mind I was in because I've never enjoyed the whole peer pressure thing. And for me, when I was when I was that age, do you remember mm-hmm. Rotten.com? Yes, I do remember. It, it was that was <clears throat> that was like the website that like teenage boys, if we went on some sort of forbidden website, it, yeah. Yeah, it's still going? It's like, oh, I don't know, and I have no intention of finding out. Um, but you know, you have motorcyclists who've come off without a helmet and their faces have been sanded off, and it's just a picture of them, and or people have been garroted, uh, you know, going through fences, and it was almost like oh, everyone would sort of pretend that they weren't grossed out by it. Because it, yes. it made it hard, and I was always the first person that just said, "I don't want to see this," and uh, just leave them to it. Um, but it was, um, and I remember some stuff would actually make uh, like people gag. They'd be looking at the screen and actually dry heaving, and I think, "Why are you? You can just mm. turn around. You can just turn around." Um, but I remember trying. To, I was just. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist anymore. <clears throat> frame of mind of the this sort of elasticity of the human mind and you know like how you deal with grief like when you're a kid you get a pet and the yeah. pet passes away and you and as you get older deaths unless they're sort of you know immediate deaths in your family you get slightly desensitized and almost used to to losing people in the periphery if you know what i mean yes. um, and i was just thinking about the the impact that like an eight-year-old would have when they're watching like disney films and then they're shown they're shown a 10 minute horror film which is designed to terrify you and <laughs> And then he's got, but there's no, there's no lead up to that. It's literally just yeah. a kept as something that you've got no context or framework in your mind to deal with it. Yes. It's just, it's just pure horror. And you can imagine like when he shuts his eyes, it's just running through his mind and scaring him. Yes. Well, I suppose, yeah, as well, because you think if they used to like Disney and stuff like that, there's a certain, they built up a certain expectation of cause and effect in those movies and the rules that essentially nothing really awful is going to happen. That, and it will turn yeah. out all right in the end. So there's an expectation that but, nothing but you're, to really upset. At the age of sort of seven or eight, you're probably old enough to to to, to question things as well. So yeah. like if he's really upset, and then you know your parents say, oh, "Don't worry, it's not real." You think, "Oh, are they just saying that." Yeah. So is that real? I'm because now I never want to go into any mountains. Ever old again. enough for skepticism. Yeah. He's so frightened from Serenade, he won't even watch any Foghorn Leghorn cartoons. Um, but it's, which is still funny, by the way. But yeah, yeah I, I was just just thinking, did you ever have anything like that? Your first um, uh, um, foray? Like, tra- in, like traumatizing. Like a, a traumatizing. Traumatizing cinematic image. Um, yeah. I recall finding, uh, it was Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because, of course, the ending of Rose of the Lost Ark is one of the most horrific things ever committed to film, where their faces start melting. <clears throat> oh, that's where the, the bloke ages faster than Walter Matthau's neck. That, I think, that was The Last Crusade, is the is the ageing one. But the melting faces when they open the Ark of the Covenant, uh, and, and, yeah, their faces literally melt off. Um, I was so utterly terrified of that, because I, I remember physically having to remove myself from the room because it was so viscerally terrifying and that you know it's a pg movie so it's not it's not like it was a forbidden movie it wasn't like a horror movie which i'd like Ooh, is a is a forbidden vhs it's like no sorry beat facts at the time but um <laughs> but that's like a kind of a you know i, I hesitate to say kids movie but it's not it is a pg it's not really designed for you know you don't think of it as being particularly horrific but I don't know. Well, Spielberg is a master of pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable in a PG. I guess because they're Nazis, it helps. But 
as a kid you don't really have any context for that i i have no idea why <laughs> you know nazis a pretty easy shorthand for evil um and deservedly so but as a kid you just think well they're the bad guys you don't think so you don't have any context of a holocaust or anything like that so you just kind of like well this is just a person's face is melting and i don't want that yeah. to happen in front of my eyes so that was probably that yeah that was very very terrifying i, I think i've actually mentioned my other podcast before because it was um <clears throat> it was when my uncle was babysitting me and he um he made me watch vamp and it just oh, yeah. the, the old vampire transformation the thing is i watched that with you last halloween um yeah a couple of halloweens before yeah. and now it's 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 a it's a brilliant film that's the one where they've got like neon strip yeah. lighting in the sewers isn't it like neon yeah brilliant grace um, jones yeah the transformation scene grace jones is full on it really is yeah i love that but stuff. I think, so visceral but I, th- I think the first time that i would say again out of context with i remember being like waking up from a nightmare and and here in my I think it was my dad watching a film downstairs and you know when tv you can just see what it's like reflected off the walls it's just blue light all the time and I could just hear like dogs barking and people shouting and mm. it terrified me because I could walk out of a dream and then I was in my house and I could just see like blue lights I had no context for the sound and it was just dogs barking growling and it just terrified me turns out he was watching K9 but <laughs> Of course, that doesn't help because your imagination takes over and you think, oh, you just... Yeah. I bet not dog. even Cujo. Yeah, not even K9000. Um, but, but yeah, it was just, yeah, the uh, it's interesting. So if any listeners have got any uh, m- moments from their childhood that we're, we're horror sort of stands out or they were thrust into the world of gore yes. <laughs> against their will, um, send us an email at the men who talk at outlook.com. Um, and there was another thing that happened and, and it's kind of moving away from horror a little bit and i just wondered how if you were aware of this and how often it, it did happen mm. i obviously with a two-year-old watch a lot of children's shows and there's a show called toot toot cory carson right if you hear this i've not heard of this <clears throat> well he's into cars at the moment so i was watching this and they've got um the Corey Carson has got like a lazy R's. So it's uh, I'm Corey, Corey Carson. And it's kind of okay. cute. And he, it's like a nice show about anthropomorphic cars. And it's animated. And I was watching it. And then a couple of months, it's always on in the background. And then I was sitting down with him the other day. And it came on. And it was the same show, the same episodes I've seen before. But they had American accents. Oh really? Uh, and if you watch one on Netflix, I think it's American. If you watch an Amazon Prime, it's a, but I I can understand having different languages for different countries. But I don't think I've ever come across that before, where it's literally no. redubbed just for US UK accent changes. That's odd. I mean, I guess I I, I don't know which direction or that, you know where it actually originated, but I suppose there could be some logic in it. If like, because kids, if kids are watching a, a show endlessly. I mean, they could potentially develop an accent which is not their native one, I suppose. But mm. I can't be. I mean, it seems like an awful lot of effort just for that. It's, yeah, that, I have not come across that so far. No, yeah, I just wondered if it was a, a commonplace thing, but I, I'd never, no. I've never come across it before. That's odd. And well, I've got that to look forward to. Okay. <laughs> and the other thing uh, before we go into the mo- the movie, the movies is um one of our listeners lee 
us ask why oh why we don't have kino kingdom stickers with qr codes on that link to the podcast website so he can and i quote go around putting them up everywhere when i'm drunk (laughs) (laughs) that sounds it sounds like a great plan and far too advanced for our we we can't even get the bloody email address right let alone alone (laughs) design and print qr codes but yeah it's a good idea Oh, yeah, I, I think I, I will look into it. I, th- I can't imagine. I've done some stuff like that for the band, but I, can, I can't imagine it'd be that hard. Um, so, yes, I made a little note of that. So thank you, Lee, for that. So um, have you got any themes for today or are you just going to have you just got a load of random films? Because it's pre-horror season. And it I know is you always pre- get little, Yeah, I'm getting, you get getting. A, a twitches in your britches. I'm getting, for <laughs> yeah, I'm getting itchy eyes to watch some horror. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I've still got this bunch of cult movies i went through uh watching a bunch of cult movies i mean i'm not sure what the definition exactly is of cult but i guess something like perhaps they weren't massively successful first time around but built up an audience over time that kind of thing uh all weren't well thought of at the time but have since been re kind of reconsidered you know i think everyone kind of knows in the heart what a cult movie is so i've watched a bunch of these some of them are better than others i won't lie so it is it is there a clear winner for you this week is it, it, it yes. was the one you thought oh good yeah i was there was, one, there was one where it's like i i had like no expectations like whoa this is like pretty cool and also it's quite unknown so yeah definitely a good one no i've heard of the three ninjas right back I've, <laughs> I've, heard of that. Um, I've heard a double dragon there was a there was a moment in this uh, just as we were prepping this um, earlier on today and uh, I say prepping it we do so little prep um, it, it, I almost did what was that film that I accidentally reviewed like two or three times in the trot because I couldn't remember it was so but I was it wasn't that film but I, I was like have I talked about last shift and you were like, don't think so and I, I actually had to listen listen to the podcast and skip through to just check but no it no, was, was the same I was the same because I've got such a backlog that. It's a good problem to have. Yeah. Anyway, oh, once, so, you mean once you've yeah, let's if we smash through the backlog today then, because I've only got yeah. four. So oh, I've got quite a few actually. <laughs> okay. Six or seven. Good, good. Um, right, who do, who how do we start? What do we start with? Do you want me to start? Because if I've got more, that makes sense. Yeah, go on then. Kick okay. off then. Change change the world for me, baby. Let me talk about Thunderbolt and Lightfoot then first. <laughs> Which was on Prime, but I think it might have gone by now because it's been so long. Um, this is a, uh, a a crime comedy caper from 1974, starring Jeff Bridges and Clint Eastwood. And oh, okay. Jeff Bridges is a petty criminal who's called Lightfoot, and Eastwood is Thunderbolt, who's a career criminal posing as a preacher. Okay. Uh, things happen, and they end up stuck with each other, basically, and they. They initially intend to travel across the country to retrieve Thunderbolt's long hidden stash of cash, but they're also pursued by Thunderbolt's ex partners in crime, one of whom is George Kennedy, who people may know from Naked Gun. Um, they squabble, but this group end up planning one last heist together, and there are various double crosses, shootouts, car chases, and in the end, tragedy. There are also some questionable sexual politics in this film. Um, what, in, in, the, in the 1970s? I know, it's weird, isn't it? Oh, it's so keen 
to establish the heterosexuality of its protagonists because you know god forbid their like bro intimacy might be confused for homosexuality so of course one of their first actions is to bring a couple of like bluesies back to a motel uh prostitutes one might say um so and then at that point actually in the motel scene you get this pretty unwholesome rape joke where basically clint eastwood's date for the night threatens to shout rape for some reason and he kind of like calls her bluff but she goes outside i think she's topless actually and just shouts it out rape rape you know like screaming it out and it cuts to like this passing motorist who uh says to his wife in the car oh hey let's stay at that place like oh. like rape is a good thing or something it's like mm, it's that particular scene is like indicative of the slightly queasy tone throughout this film it it's too cynical and misogynistic to be enjoyed on the same level as say midnight run one of our favorites um which obviously has like a briskness and lightness of touch that this really doesn't have there are action scenes in there they're physical obviously but they're not very interesting or dynamic i wouldn't say it has this sad slightly forced maudlin ending which recalls well midnight cowboy although that's probably a spoiler but i don't know it it felt a bit forced to me i think the film mm. does look really nice sometimes like michael Caimino loves the american landscape because he also made the deer hunter uh which is just gorgeous and heaven's gate which is like a four-hour western um which looks amazing so it definitely looks beautiful but then you think well films like dead serious war film like the deer hunter or like epic western like heaven's gate i'm not sure michael camino is really best suited for this kind of knockabout action comedy fair i would say i think you're better off sticking with the aforementioned midnight run at or steven spielberg's sugarland express uh or which is from the same period or if you're looking for something from that period which is both gorgeous and more serious um, I'd recommend Terence Malick's Badlands. That's good, but yeah, this isn't really up to that standard, unfortunately. Thunderbolt Lightfoot. Um, Gary Boosie's in this film, I can see. Yes. Um, what is what what's happening on the on the poster? It because it just looks like Clint Eastwood's wearing ill-fitting trousers, and he's just got his foot. I thought it was on like massive camera, but is that just an enormous barrel of a of a Let's like a mounted gun? Mountain can right okay thunderbolt and lightfoot poster it says this is the oh. poster version are you looking at the one i'm looking at he's got i like, don't know one. Oh yeah i don't, it looks I like don't a, know what i'm looking at <laughs> what is that like it looks like a full-on so it's him his face and then it's a him it's and a, a mounted gun it's a drawing <laughs> and him and a mounted gun so it's like him twice I don't know what's happening for some reason it's just a really it's meant to look like a war movie i don't it's really not a war movie yeah i it's just didn't a good know. movie um yes i wouldn't bother with this thunderbolt and lightfoot michael camino's um output is so bizarre i'm just as you were chatting then i was mm. just looking at his um it, it's it, going into his filmography i was there a second i'm sorry <clears throat> it's mm. like you've got he wrote silent running 
and Magnum Force, obviously, and the Outlaw Josie Wilson, who's obviously a big, big Clint fan. I mean, you've got the films he directed with Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate. I know there was a lot going on with that. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Year of the Dragon. And then the last film was like The Sun Chaser with Woody Harrelson. And the cover of that film looks absolutely <laughs> abominable. It looks like oh my God. like a, a like a straight, straight to VHS, like oh, not, yeah. no, nothing film from the mid 90s. I venture so, that that is really <clears> trying to <throat> capitalize on falling down as well, because even, he's even got this kind of like broken um mm. lens on his glasses so yes it, yeah this just it looks terrible look right. yeah well i mean i know michael camino was obviously pretty much ruined by heaven's gate because it's a famous disaster um i watched uh barbie we were sent a screen oh, with yeah. this because our thoughts are so highly thought of and I was not, I really didn't know what to expect with this. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think I've seen a Greta Gerwig film. And the only exposure I've had to Noah Baumbach, I think, is what we had a conversation about before where I watched that film with Adam Driver in and I just thought oh, yeah. I'm not in the mood for this. And I, and I basically never returned to it. So my whole knowledge of this film pre-sitting down to watch it last night was, <clears throat> was I knew that Ryan Gosling had been cast in it and I fancy Ryan Gosling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll talk about Margot Robbie in a bit, but I didn't know what to expect. I thought, is it like going to be a, is it aimed at kids? I, but then with those directors, I know they tend to do sort of a lot more sort of esoteric indie fear. So I, I really didn't know what to expect. Um, and it, it, now that I've watched it, it takes a really unusual approach, but it it kind of works. Um, <clears throat> so the, the the plot is. Uh, Margot Robbie plays stereotypical Barbie, like a typical Barbie in this weird sort of a world where they live in huge dream houses, but every every day is the same. And when they drink milk, you know, it's, they just pretend to drink it and uh, they they flaunt around and they have nothing to do. And they're always just everyone's called Barbie. And then they go to the beach and there's a load of dudes and they're all called Ken. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's Ryan Gosling who actively fancies Margot Robbie and everyone else just is really happy to be in this really fictitious Barbie world. And what happens is that Barbie just starts to get these like really bizarre um, sort of complex thoughts mm. and questioning them. And, and there's a really funny scene where she's they're like dancing in the same dance routine they do every night, apparently. And then she just they're dancing. and They've got these sort of rictus grins on their faces. And then she suddenly says, does anyone ever think about death? And and everyone's like stops and looks at it. She's like, oh, I mean, I mean. I'd die if I didn't stop dancing. And they would laugh. <laughs> and so, and then she wakes up the next day and she's got like morning breath and stuff like that. Um, and it turns out that there's this Barbie world. And if they travel down the road out of Barbie world, they go to the real world. And it's sort of a fish out of water of comedy where they uh, both go back and forth for various reasons because uh, Ken realizes because he's just the kind of and Ken sub figure in Barbie world when he goes to the real world where patriarchy's rule he, he kind of gets drawn into that whole thing mm-hmm. um the film is front loaded with its laughs so it's nearly two hours long which quite shocked me and the whole Barbie land is so well realized with I mean I, I my knowledge of Barbie literally I thought Barbie and Cindy were like the same thing. I, I you know, I mean, I, I'm much more au fait with Sylvanian families, genuinely. And 
I, I, there was obviously a lot of callbacks to all the different versions of Barbie that, I, that completely went over my head. But I was when I was watching the film, I was trying to work out who the the key demo was and what how different people would react to it. And I think it kind of I don't know what reviews this film has got, but I can imagine that uh, it would make a lot of people happy because it's got enough sort of mm. silly slapstick and. Ryan Gosling is such a good comedic actor and he clearly does all of his best work in comedies that it like I was just every, every line kind of landed for me that that either Margot Robbie or Ryan Gosling said and I felt like I got my value out of it just on that alone just on the last mm. um I can imagine if you're a Barbie fan there's a lot of like sort of easter eggs in there um and also the film gets bizarrely well not I wouldn't say bizarrely like running pretty strongly throughout it is um sort of full-on existentialist musings mm. uh, where they'll just look people just launch into monologues about you know what it is what it is t- to be alive and what what is the point of living and um should should you be happy if your life is the same sort of thing mm. and and so it's like a lot of quite complex issues dealt with in a way that you can choose to ignore them and still enjoy the film or you can or they could become conversation pieces which is something i didn't expect from a barbie film yeah. um but um, the, what happens is then, as much as I was enjoying, uh, and the, it, the writing in this, if if there was very few other people in this film, if I mean, if you didn't have Ryan Gosling and Margot Robbie, Ryan yeah. Gosling especially, I can imagine this would have really, really fallen flat, because right. it it kind of relies on on delivery because some of the stuff is so broad. It, yeah. It's almost it's almost about the, the the way people deliver lines and the sort of facial expressions, um, and but what happens is as the film gets bigger and bigger and it and it, it builds and builds, I would say the final third, it it gets very messy, very sentimental, and it kind of overreaches a bit in what it's okay. trying to say. So I did lose interest, and it, and I have to admit the last t- when I, I was tired. And I checked and it was like 10 minutes left. And I said to Faye, look, can you just watch the last 10 minutes? Because I feel like I'm kind of done with this now. I'm going to go and put the sheets on the bed because we dried our sheets. And yeah, I just think that Faye was the same that it got to the last, like, you know, I'd say 20, 25 minutes. And it's like, meh, I kind of wish this was trimmed down now. It just feels like it's just going over the same things over and over again. And it's packed. Um, I I look at you, Will Ferrell, and his uh, cabal people who just either don't need to be in the film or who I assume are somehow involved in the financing because there are characters in there that just seem to just hang around Mm. until the end and come and go. And you're like, this feels like it could have been a bit leaner, but Faye would have said she would have given it eight out of 10 and I would have given it like a seven, 7.5, but a high Mm. seven, if you know what I mean. I mean, if I watch this with a daughter, like a teenage daughter or whatever, or someone who was like a, big fan or a collector or whatever a barbie then i can imagine i would have got a lot more for it because i can imagine it's mm. one of those films that some would turn around halfway and say oh blah 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 blah, and reel off a load of facts as it is i enjoyed it as a, as, as, a, as a straight comedy given that i'm not your teenage daughter and i know nothing about barbie will i enjoy this i suppose i can enjoy it for two thirds like you did yeah i'd be intrigued if you didn't watch it because um i mean I'm trying to think if the I might be able to send you the screen actually, but the, it's I think you will 
if you just think you're just going to watch a silly comedy like, yeah. I, and I and I think the lines that land and just the, how ridiculous the clothes that Ryan Gosling wears. And I was thinking this. He's obviously like 42 or whatever now. Yeah. And it just tickles me that he's obviously a fit man. But he's clearly never been as ripped as he is in this film. And it tickles me that like out of, out of his entire career, the thing he has obviously put the most physical labor into getting looking is for Ken. <laughs> he is completely, there's like not an ounce of fat on his body. Um, yeah. But but that's the, that's the other thing I was going to mention is Margot Robbie. I mm. was talking to Fears we were watching it and saying I, I, I'm actively in a relationship with Ryan Gosling in my mind yeah. ever, ever since he was in The Nice Guys. Margot Robbie is almost so so classically pretty that I'd, I was trying to explain I was trying to explain <laughs> to Faye She's why I too fan- pretty. Yeah, why I fancy Gillian Anderson more than Margot Robbie. And it was, <laughs> it, was it was a conversation you, I you myself did. <laughs> Um, I was just saying, she's so like classically. She's obviously a beautiful woman, but I just don't see. It. I see it, but it's yeah. like it's so typical that I. Okay. It kind of does nothing for me. Um. Um. But obviously, if Gillian Anderson, if I if I could simply like hold, a, if I could hold a train ticket that Gillian Anderson had once looked at, then I'd be <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's not. It's not really a, a conundrum that has to be solved. I'm not. Sure, I don't think. No. Because no. It's not really a choice you're ever going to have to make. That's my point. Yeah, but I think it were obviously in the film it works because Margot Robbie is such a classically beautiful woman. But then Ryan Gosling is a slightly idiosyncratic-looking handsome man. You know, yes. he's not like. It's, and I, and I, I think that that was what it was. I don't think of him as a typically handsome man. I mean, he is obviously sexy, but yeah. But yes, she's very classically uh, proportioned, etc., isn't she? She does look like a Barbie. Um, uh, one of the other, yeah. before we move on, uh, something it did. Um, Kate McKinnon's in this film as yes. kind of a, a weird Barbie, and I, I remember watching the original, not the original, the the Ghostbusters, yeah. uh, all female, and and it, it didn't work for me at all. And I've seen yeah. her in a couple of other films, but she is really funny in this because I was wondering. If I just didn't find her funny, but she is she is really funny in this, and I think it just she comes can up be funny, yeah. material, yeah. Yeah, it all depends on the material. She's very, uh, yeah, she's good. Like some of her impressions, are good. She does Saturday Night Live, doesn't she? Mm. Not that we on this side of the pond ever watched that, but there you go. Um, you see the clips on YouTube, and that's enough, right? So okay, I will watch Barbie at some point. I will. I'm happy for but, you. Yeah, maybe when the hype's died down um and it's free to watch somewhere um so i watched <laughs> on prime i watched red dawn uh the 1984 war thriller directed by john conan milius have you seen this ah uh, do you know what i get yeah i get what I get these films mixed up in my mind. I get Red Dawn and Red Red Sonja and Men of War all mixed up in my head. So even though they're all different. So, well, the basic plot is Russians and Cubans attack America. Um, (laughs) And in Colorado, Paddy Swayze and Charles Sheen come to the rescue. Uh, And they are there. Their group of teenage so-called wolverines is their nickname. They hide in the hills and perform raids and ambushes on these invaders in a very A-team gung-ho way. They find it weirdly easy to avoid 
these professional invading soldiers over the weeks and months. In fact, the Wolverines only actually get into trouble when they go go for an all-out assault. Other than that, they seem quite happy um, for the most part. This film was an unbelievable 80s cast. Like uh, you got Patrick Swayze, you got Charlie Sheen, C. Thomas Howell, got Leah Thompson, Jennifer Grey, pre-Dirty Dancing, of course. Um, mm. But also flirting with Swayze, so that's quite weird. Um, Harry Dean Stanton, Powers Booth. They're all there. The whole gang's there. Um, now, it's I know that it, it, Red Dawn's kind of thought of as like quite a like a, an old fashioned like um, what do you call it jingoistic uh, patriotic right wing movie, but I don't know. I think it's actually quite an interesting idea on paper, or should I say like an inversion, because it's actually less of a patriotic fantasy, more like a way of making U.S. audiences see war from the perspective of the invaded which is actually a decent concept except as a movie it's really quite dull and self-serious unfortunately because it it pushes for this kind of war movie weightiness when i think it could have been more effective as an all-out action movie or even better as a satire like you can imagine what paul beerhoven might have made of this for example but no it's got extremely plodding pacing and it settles very slowly into a series of sentimental, plaintive firefight, fireside scenes, uh, like intercut with like stodgy action montages. And it has this irritating, pseudo poetic Fisher Price existentialism <laughs> script where these simple country kids suddenly start saying stuff like, oh, the mountains don't care. Or, or like the wind keeps blowing like a 14 year old trying to be Cormac McCarthy or something. So it's a, it has some nice scenery. And those good... those lines, are they closely followed by another character saying, right? right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nice scenery. Good cast, but too boring. It It's weirdly not gung ho or offensive enough to be camp fun. It's disappointingly straight. Uh, down the middle of the road really so i was disappointed by this um i thought it would be a lot more invasion usa yeah i think i got this mixed up because red sonia is that's the that's the dolph lundgren sword and sandal one isn't it and then men of war is the dolph lundgren one where they've they they go to the island to sort of kill a lot of people and then defending it yeah this this was one i haven't seen i always kind of I would have watched this when I worked in the video shop and, and this would have, this would have been, I always moved away from anything sort of militarical. You know, every time I saw like anything involving war or whatever, I think, uh, I don't know. I just, just want to watch something more like mean guns where, you know, it's, it starts off as if it's going to be a uh, low budget. I actually think it might even be Albert Payne, um, 1996 or 97, film where it's like a battle royale and a load of prisoners are thrown into this abandoned complex and it's like the last one to survive gets a free pass what mm-hmm. it actually what it actually boils down to is christopher lambert and ice tea hunched behind a desk talking about the children that they miss and i thought no oh, it's a slightly different vibe to what i was going for <laughs> i'm gonna have to watch that again now it is out of um Oh, by the way, while it's in my mind, we're going away this weekend, obviously, for a, for a board gaming session. And I yes. fully intend on bringing a fistful of DVDs that, that have been 
plunged onto me for various reasons so mm-hmm. everyone can suffer with me excellent so, so we're going to be going through a few of those um yeah so red dawn is one that i i mean the whole it, it's not one i'm ever going to watch i think yeah, i do i do not i do note that c thomas howell's in this film yes he is yeah. <laughs> and uh what because obviously c thomas howell has got two he's got two speeds hasn't he he's got mm-hmm. he's got him in the hitcher and then him being a miscast twat and everything else. So which which one does this fall under? Which, which um, number? Are... I mean, to be honest, the characters are so interchangeable and unmemorable and generic that I mean, he's just. It's like that they're, they're not characters as such, but they just represent some aspect of um, the human spirit, I suppose. Like, so I think he's the young naive one. Is he the one who gets angry? and reckless i can't remember but he's he's youthful and inexperienced and gets a good telling off from powers booth you you said they're all so interchangeable just imagine if snow white wandered into that cave in the woods and said oh my god seven dwarves what are your names and then uh, they said well i'm interchangeable he's forgetful <laughs> I'm generic. He's meh. He's disgruntled. He's he's all right. Um, and, and and that's it'll do over there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm what? <laughs> and he's right. <laughs> um, so I'm, what are you going to call him, Mr. Jones? Well, we were either thinking Robert or my my wife quite likes right. <laughs> Okay, okay. You, mean, you mean right? Okay. No, 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 no. Right. Yeah, you could you couldn't get angry. You know, people say the things they shout at their dogs if they give their dogs stupid names. That's one. It's almost like the shot what because you can't say it without having it and a question mark as opposed to an exclamation mark. If you were sh- if you were if you had a child and he was running towards traffic, you'd be like, no, no, come for God's sake, come back. Right. <laughs> You would hear you shouting and as he ran towards the the boat away, turn around and say, come back, come back. And then he'd hear, uh, and it would stop. The sound would stop because he wouldn't travel. Yeah. He, he, he must be talking to someone else. He'd turn um, around to check if you were just running your fingers along a comb. Yeah, or, or someone really slowly zipping up a sleeping bag. <laughs> uh, um, so, uh, I, yeah, so I'm not going to watch Red Dawn. Thanks for Excellent, brilliant. That. Um, I'm glad to provide that service. It was remade as well, but I guess that's shit as well. You know, that is a nice segue into what I'm about to talk about, uh, because I'm about to talk about a film that was remade. Hang on, Red Dawn was remade? Yeah, I think not that long ago with... um, Chris Chris Hemsworth? I'm not sure who's Mm. invading. Maybe uh, China or North Korea? Some of that. I don't know. I, I, I'm even more bored now, so I'm going yeah. to talk over you. Uh, I watched one that was remade recently as well, and it was seemingly bizarre turn, but I'm going to watch it. Um, this was a Prime special mm-hmm. called Last Shift. This is a 2014 horror film, and I, I, I haven't watched as many films as I have been busy with other aspects of things and so when i sit down and watch films what i do is i have this awful habit right when i'm with Faye of we're gonna watch a horror film tonight boom okay and then we'll make food and we'll sit down and we'll pour the wine and then i think oh, i forgot to choose a film so then i'm sitting there as my food is cooling down 
and Fee sat next to me, scrolling through all the, the awful bloody um, setup of, of Netflix, which just seems to make me want to watch, what's it called, bloody ICU with Sylvester Stallone on repeat for some reason. It turns <laughs> up in every single genre that I search through. <laughs> Um, and and I'm like I end up just thinking oh, I can't say anything and then I lose my temper. We watch something on YouTube and then I go to bed angry. But this time I was scrolling through and I saw this last shift and I and I said, look, this is a horror film about a rookie cop's last day at an abandoned police station and it's haunted to shit and back. Boom, play. And I was very pleasantly surprised with it. Um, the the film is directed by Anthony DiBiase, who is no relation to the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase. Or his wayward son, Ted DiBiase Jr., for those listeners out there wondering that. I have never heard of him before, or or the main uh, actor in this film, Juliana Harkavy. Uh, so it is nice when that happens, isn't it? When you don't know the director, you don't, and you think, oh, but this, you know, and you know, sometimes you watch a horror film when it comes on within about 30 seconds through the lighting and yeah. the sound design, you can tell, no, this is too cheap. This is too yeah. low, but it's not going to be good. Um, the, it, the plot starts off and she is an attractive young rookie cop who uh, is sort of a young go-getter and she turns up to this police station, which is, is sort of, it looks like it's in the sort of on the outskirts of the suburbs and they move to a new, uh, a new, new police station and it's just all the phone lines have been diverted and she's just there effectively as a janitor till from eight at night till eight in the morning uh, when it'll just be completely decommissioned. And of course, it is not an evening that goes by without happening. Incident. <laughs> this, this film instantly started off on the right foot for me uh, because it's really, really well lit uh, and well filmed. Um, yeah. I don't know what the budget was, but it looks tasty. But it's something at the start that instantly made me laugh. Is she she goes in and she's like trying to find the sergeant in this police station. It's just yeah. like a two, almost like a just a two story flat brick building. So it's not. I was going to ask, is it is it? Can we establish? Is this a film set over one night in a single location? It, Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, so she walks in and she's like, hello, because there's supposed to be someone that sort of hand the keys over to her. And she looks down the corridor to the lockers and there's a middle aged man uh, and he's he's like tr- trying to slam, slam a locker shut and he's like booting it and screaming and swearing at it. And, and she's like, hello, can I help you? And he turns at her and as he turns, he says, how long have you been standing there looking at me? <laughs> and and she says, what? And he, and he said, how long have you been watching me? And she's like, just a second. He says, turn around. So she turns around and starts walking off. And he says, I said, turn around, not walk away. And she, so she sort of stops. And she's like, what? <laughs> and it's just this incredibly awkward opening that instantly puts like, just makes it really sort of roughshod between them. And it really tickled me. Just the thought of someone trying to close a cupboard. You say, can I help? And they say, how long have you been watching me? What a <laughs> response. That's got to be a top 10 film response. Um, so, yeah, he's just really gruff with it. And he's like, yeah, you know, um, just stay here. Don't nick anything. And only call me if there's an emergency because... I'm in at eight in the morning. I want to go and have a have a wah. I want to have a sleep. He says. Um, so she's sort of sat there and thinks that, and then like you know the phone rings and she gets this weird call from a girl who's been kidnapped. And then when they try to trace the call, they say no, the phone lines have all been rerouted to the new police station. So I don't know where that call comes from. She starts to see weird visions, and the film build, builds up quite nicely. I say it builds up quite nicely. The the main. The main issue with the film, and I had to just, I was enjoying it so much, I chose to put it out of my mind. She puts up with an 
awful lot of very unexplained unexplainable happenings before she says do you know what i'm gonna skip because like the first thing that happens she sees like a vision of a woman covered in like bloody pentagram bloody pentagrams running towards her screaming mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. she goes outside and she's sort of like what's wrong with me i obviously just imagined that and goes back in yeah. and i think da, da, da. but this happens about three or four times she kind of goes something really extreme happens she runs outside freely through the front doors gathers her thoughts and then just goes back in i think oh. it, it, do they even bother with a backstory like where she might have been a bit kooky before or, or you know that she got on medication or anything that's you know no no she's just she's, no, she's just she's, bright, she's okay. kind of a, like a down-to-earth like by the book sort of rookie cop and okay you find out it's not really a spoiler to say that her, if, if father's a policeman who died in the line of duty so she wants to kind of make him proud but the, the happenings are so clearly supernatural and intense <laughs> like so so quickly that you think oh, i don't know if i'd be hanging around there um but that said it there's a lot of jump scares in this film but they kind of feel earned because you know it's a low budget film set and uh, as you said it's a it's a low budget horror film that's really well shot yeah. and it it is set over one night in a single location and it's good so that gives it a lot of leeway for me yeah um, maximizes its limitations absolutely so well i think if you go on this going into last shift thinking oh, you're going to be blown away and this is going to be a horror film you'll keep returning to it, it's not that but it is a great way to spend an evening and it's I, it felt brief i'm just looking now it's 87 minutes oh, good, good, not yeah. not 86 which is the key I'll fit in the VHS. Yeah, um, <laughs> the soundtrack will fit in a ferret I can, tape. I can record that onto a VHS. Um, what? Um, what's it on? Do you say Netflix? Um, it's on. It's no, it's on um, Amazon Prime. It's a Prime. Okay. okay yeah. but, but the other, the other thing of note I wanted to say is that um, Anthony DiBiase, mm. who directed it, also was an executive producer on some really, really good horror films from the early two thousand, the mid two thousands, the Midnight okay. Meat Train which is a, a great uh, horror film with Vinnie Jones, Book of Blood and Dread. And anyone likes gross out mm. horror films, I urge them to watch Dread because there is a scene in that film, I've covered it on this podcast, that made me gag and actually had to leave the room for a second because I thought <laughs> I was going to be sick. Um, and yeah, th- so that he did this in 2014. He directed this and, and wrote it. But he's done a remake of it nine years later called Malum. And it's the same premise and it's got... Mm. It's, it says it's a reboot reimagining, and that's Malum, if people want to look this up, M-A-L-U-M, um, where it, it looks like it's he's just remade it. And and he, he, looking at the films he's made in between, like I don't know if you recognize any of these, um, Wuthering High School, Most Likely to Die, Exhume. I, they're not, it's not like he's really boosted his, no. you know, his what is, is, is sort of um, stance in Hollywood and he's going to come back because this film didn't need a budget. It doesn't feel like it needs a remake. Yeah. Or, it's, it's, it's not like Michael Mann remaking LA Takedown as Heat after yeah. having made, you know, like Last of the and stuff. It's mm. like, yeah. And yeah, but, you probably wouldn't have had access to much bigger budget anyway. It was released this, it's on it's on VOD now. I don't know where, but yeah, Malam. And I'm tempted, oh, it's Latin for evil, apparently. I'm tempted to watch it because the first one was so good, but I think it, if it was, I enjoyed the first one, why would I want to watch a remake yeah. nine years later? It's, so, But but it's, it's such a, seems like such a bizarre choice to make that I I do actually want to, I do want to yeah. go for it. Okay, so uh, this one's, yeah, 
I'm intrigued by this one. And I do need I do need a list of horror movies to be watching over the next month or so. Why, why don't you watch the remake then? Why didn't you watch Malum? Oh, yeah, Malum. How do you spell um, it again? M-A-L-U-M. Yeah, like you have someone called Malcolm who shortens his name but forgets his surname. Yeah. Okay. I'll just think of it that way. I <laughs> remember. I used to um, work with a, a stupid girl who um, used to struggle. I said, oh, I really struggle to remember my password. And she said, oh, I, I remember my password by just by this. And she just said her password out loud. And I said, how does how do you see so you remember your password? And your trick is to just remember your password. <laughs> and she was like, yeah. Okay. Pro tip. Yeah, stupid. Thanks girl. for that. Um, so, um, but yeah, Malum and uh, Last Shift was was good, and I think you should watch it. I shall dig it out. Um, so I, I've got a horror, so that's good. Uh, another one on Prime. It's called the Poughkeepsie Tapes. Poughkeepsie, Poughkeepsie, Poughkeepsie. I Poughkeepsie. think I think I've seen this. So this is a found footage faux documentary from oh, 2007. Your, fa- yeah. your favourite genre. <laughs> it's about a New York State serial killer who filmed everything, obviously, for reasons unknown. Uh, it is presented as a series of like experts and news reports intercut with the killer's home videos. And this is a film that's picked up a cult following as far as I can see, for no other reason that it couldn't secure a release in 2007 when it was made. And it wasn't until 2014 that it actually got wide distribution. I guess this creates some kind of like artificial notoriety. It, it, it must be good. Yeah. 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 And almost like, like, a, like mythologized a... scarcity as if it's some legendary lost VHS. Or oh, maybe oh, it just wasn't a very good film in the first well, place. Well, yeah, because I was going to say, if I if I was in a bar and I was chatting at the, chatting at the broad... And uh, she said, oh, so what do you do? And I said, well, uh, let's just say that I made a film and it took me nearly a decade to get distribution. <laughs> She's like, it's not impressive, is it? She said, well, does that no. mean it's not very good? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, in this case, yeah, yeah, yeah. Its flaws are very much obvious from the very start, really, because obviously it's a faux documentary, but it's got very, it's got low quality acting. So, of course, all mm. the interview sections are completely unconvincing from the start. And mm. that alone kills it, really. The tapes themselves, like the home video stuff, some of them are well done. But the question is, of course, why film them? Uh, And fortunately, this (laughs) is a movie that arrived at a time when torture porn was still a thing. Uh. And then you combine it with found footage. And actually, when you think about it in that way, torture porn is arguably being superseded by real world footage. Because, you know, if you're that desperate for shock value, you could just watch like a cartel murder video if you really wanted to yeah but um, but but also it, it, the only if you've got torture porn there you've got found footage if only it was a fear of foreigners film as well that would be like the yeah, holy trinity of average. ideal um there is one great scene in this film where he picks up a woman in a car and the camera is fixed on her face as he drives her somewhere and and, and as their conversation progresses Look, we witness this gradual realization that she's in trouble. Uh, and obviously, it's those moments where it's subtle and it isn't graphic, it, that are memorable and creepy. But 
the, it, as a film overall is just too fundamentally flawed like would a documentary really show this level of violence would a documentary edit the violence in this very crass and tasteless way well possibly but it would be frowned upon should we say and like there's thousands of hours of video supposedly but there's no psychological insight at all so it's like purely linear abc storytelling and i feel like there was an opportunity to sort of present this genuinely scary monster who makes snuff movies but it's too stupid and unambitious to really venture into the heart of darkness it just it just wants to get to the next money shot and yeah and the problem is it's yeah found footage is a problem that never really solved itself like <laughs> I, I i'm not convinced that any found footage can really convince after blair witch because the thing about blair witch and why that worked was because of course all of the marketing had that ambiguity about it um where people genuinely believed and of course you can't it can never happen again. You can never have that ambiguity again about because whether something's real or not. Because of the internet. Exactly. And, well, and it doesn't help the fact that this is badly made. <laughs> so that doesn't help. It's trash, even by fan footage standards. So, um, yes, it's a cult movie, which doesn't deserve a cult. <clears throat> this is um, this was released through the Orion Pictures as well. John Eric Dowdle, the director of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, also did Quarantine, which was quite celebrated. Right. Devil, Devil, which I thought was directed by M. Night Shyamalan, but he just wrote just the story. Just They had his name all over it. Was, that, was 20... Devil the one where it... Oh, I can't remember. There was some controversy about the ending. Is that the one? Or no, I'm thinking of the... No, it was another... The last exorcism or something like that. No, it wasn't Devil. Devil was the one, yes, that was notable because of the fact that M. Night Shyamalan... It was... The marketing leaned so heavily on M. Night Shyamalan, it was just cynically trying to make you think that, that he directed it. What What was the what was the issue with the ending of the last? I can't remember. There was some massive controversy about it. Like, um, I think it was the was it the last exorcism? I'll have to look it up and and. Get I'm looking at it because it says there's a poster controversy in the UK about a. Mm-hmm. Maybe it wasn't that. Maybe it's a, it's a film around that time anyway, but there was a massive, yeah, it, like it being a total cop out. Um, uh, but well, yeah, I, I'll have to look it up because it was, I remember finding an interesting story. Not that it was a film I ever saw. Yeah, but I'm yes, thinking, let me know yeah. some intrigue. But what I was going to say is Eric Dowdle, of course, boom, there it is, 2014. He wrote and directed As Above, So Below. Oof. So he just didn't move on from the found footage thing, you know, after what, seven years? And yeah. See, As Above, So Below, again, another massively overrated film. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, I'm just having a, trying to think of what, what I had next to, to talk about. Sorry, I've got... Oh, yes, of course. Well, we'll stick with the horror theme, um, because I watched Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. <laughs> of course I did. Why wouldn't I? Okay. Well, have you seen this? You said that. With no, the... no I, I was... Partly intrigued by it, and it, it was intriguing mostly because of the fact that Winnie the Pooh is now in public domain, so you can just use. That's why it's made, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, if you want, Rupert, you can listen to what I say, and then you can make your choice about whether you think you'll ever watch the film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to provide this service. Um, 
<clears throat> so the reason this came about is because obviously because we're such famous podcasters i was I, I was just i was probably just doing something like throwing money up in the air and laughing at it as it fell around me or something uh and uh they said oh, i was talking to someone at work and said that um oh you know you did you reviewed movies in the podcast and and then as she was explaining it the person put the hand on his shoulder and said have has he seen winnie the pooh blood and honey oh it's brilliant you've got to watch it so i thought well you know anytime anyone kind of gives us a recommendation i feel obliged to watch it i look at you laszlo buckets with what was that film with the one with james woods and um james woods and michael j fox the hard way yes yeah laszlo tried to get us to watch that phrase and i'm really glad i did in the end um but yeah, this this is another re- basically a, a, a effectively a listener recommendation of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. It's on Amazon Prime. I paid three pounds fifty for it. Uh, so as you said, it's in public domain now, and the story starts off, and it's uh, it's again it's a theme this week for me. It, the film is front loaded basically. So it starts off, and it's a a sort of <laughs> Derek Jacobian. Uh, Winnie the Pooh uh, at the start and it's all this sort of um, animated pen and ink drawings showing Christopher Robin discovering the Hundred Acre Wood and uh, meeting Winnie the Pooh and, and, and this crew it's quite funny actually because these are sort of scratchy pen and ink animated drawings the introduction sequence and it, it's 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 the, the narrator says he came in the Hundred Acre Wood and came across Winnie the Pooh and Eeyore and Piglet not rec- and he befriended these Let's call them what they are, mutants. And it just really tickled me. It's like, oh, what you would these really creepy like animals? Um, so yeah, he and then the the plot is that, um, and I don't know how close this is to the actual A. Milne story. Um, he befriends them, and then when he becomes a teenager, he says, "I'm I'm not going to come back. I'm going to go to college and and do my thing." And he leaves, but because they've got so used to him bringing them food and gifts, they basically end up just eating Eeyore and becoming cannibals and just uh, unable to fend for themselves they just become basically cannibalistic hitchhikers a la um, the the evil family in wrong turn it's mm-hmm. that kind of vibe mm-hmm. um, this isn't really a spoiler because I thought the whole film was going to be Christopher Robin going back and then them him evading them or hunting them down or whatever but what happens is within the first 10 minutes uh, you see Christopher Robin going back with his uh, his wife to be. The, the film does this thing. It's forced drama, right? So Christopher Robin is saying to the, this his wife, who's clearly about 25 years older than him, they're walking through the Hundred Acre Wood, and he says, ah, here we go. This is the place, I think. As he stands next to a sign that says the Hundred Acre Wood, and I thought, well, it is, isn't it? It is the place. And they, they're walking through the forest and he says, oh, they, and he's talking about how brilliant Winnie the Pooh is and how, how much fun they had when he was a kid. And it's very clear that she doesn't believe him. And she says, I I think you were just misremembering your childhood and this is all a lot of bollocks. And they get into this argument. And I thought, surely, surely she would have brought that up before you're hiking in the rain in a forest. Like you, you can humour someone, but when you actually <laughs> you've travelled and made this journey back to his childhood, wouldn't you have said, "Oh, can we not do that?" Because I think you're just, I think you're just talking about a dream sequence, effectively from 20 years ago. Um, so they go in there, and 
uh, it's very clear that not all is well. And Winnie the Pooh instantly garrots his wife and kidnaps Christopher Robin, possibly killing him. And this is all well and good. It's all done in a sort of typical modern slasher way, passably. Um, but the problem is Pig- Piglet and Winnie the Pooh were the main hunters in this film. And Piglet mm-hmm. lo- looks horrible because he, they're both big, out-of-shape guys, big hulking men, mountain men with these check shirts, <laughs> d- dungarees on. But, of course, Piglet's head is like this overgrown boar's head with tusks, and it looks horrible. It looks genuinely mm-hmm. like a horror mask. But Winnie the Pooh just looks like a cheap, there's no fear on it. It looks like a plastic, unreal mask. And it really, mm. it really just makes, it's not threatening and it's not, yeah. he doesn't, he doesn't kind of look innocent. It just looks cheap. So the whole, whenever you see him, it just looks like someone with a plastic mask on and just feels a bit silly. And the other thing that affects the back half of this film is a load of, it cuts from that from this sort of tense build-up where you just see the footsteps and hear the kind of pig squeals and stuff to just a load of really irritating girls who wouldn't be friends in real life turning up at this house and just taking the tops off and getting hunted down by them. And the film is so lazy in how it treats these the girls and the, and the, the characters of the girls that are getting mm. killed. They turn up, right? They're all... They all wouldn't be friends. You've got like a nerd, a kind of a yeah. slut. One is, is, is the typical stuff. One who's, who's obsessed with social media. One who's had a stalker. And they all turn up. And then every, they, they're all just separate. And they all just get killed in separate, in sort of individually. And there's no sense of why they're there. Well, they all turn up actually. And then one of them says, oh, come on. Then put all your mobile phones in this bag. We, we agreed to not have mobile phones for this holiday. And everyone complains. And I thought... If you're saying that's the only reason you went on this holiday and when you arrive there and say, right, now let's all spend time together and you all refuse to put your phones away, why go on the holiday? You all clearly don't get on. So it's just ridiculous. Um, It kind of like House of VHS in that way where it's a a group of people that clearly aren't friends and don't get on and have no chemistry. So anyway, the the kills then... It's not uncommon in horror, no. (laughs) the, The film then just sort of degenerates into just boring kills that... Uh, it's almost it's almost like it expects the premise they're like oh look Winnie the Pooh is killing yeah, everyone carried to, by the premise to carry and it's it doesn't not beyond the first it falters after like 20-25 minutes and it never never regains it um, um, so I yeah was really disappointed with it uh, and apparently the director uh, slash writer Chris what's his name uh, Riss Freak Waterland Reese Freak Waterland kind of sees this as a, an entry into oh you know when everything else falls into public domain you can do the same thing with bambi you can do the same thing with snow and it's like no because you're just a bad director who's a, is a, yeah. a, a kind of lucking into getting making these films and people will think oh my god yeah bambi like uh, killing the hunters it's not enough to su- to support a 90 minute film it has to be good it has to have some sort of value beyond yeah. the, the actual premise written down on paper. Yeah. Beyond um, just is, surface level subversion. Yeah. And this is an 84 minute film and it, and it really felt longer. And I, yeah, I, I did fast forward a little bit cause I thought I'm just fed up by watching people just walk through the woods in darkness screaming, to be honest, because this yeah. just feels like a thousand other films. <laughs> yes. That is basic, isn't it? Yeah. It does sound like it's really trying to just, Ride on the coattails. It, it, it's, of it's, it's got it's concept. got that it's got that that touch as well. That slightly evil touch where they've clearly just added boobs 
um, where the, the producers have just said, oh, look, this isn't very good. Just get some tits in it. Because there are just mm-hmm. scenes where people are just topless for no reason. It's like, oh. okay. You know, it's it's not even like a, a an an auteur's failure. It's just it feels like it's yeah. made by committee as well. Yeah, and also I suppose they'll always be able to fall back on the whole. Oh yeah, but it's just like eighties movies. It's like yeah, it doesn't have to be like that though, does it? It's not a good part of eighties movies. It's just needless nudity. Anyway, okay. So what what is that on? And should I bother watching it? No, no, no. That was on. Um, to be honest, it was so flat and boring that it put me off anything it felt like a like we talked about earlier on like a um mm. like a like a torture porn thing it, like the whole if he if they're going to take this into a genre now where it you know it's you know we've had like fear of foreigners and torture porn and and um yeah. uh, bloody found footage if this is going to be a you know taking taking childhood eight stories from you know and, and then like roll dial things and then horrifying them it's just going to be yeah. incredibly lazy so it, it's put me off the entire genre before it even starts to be a genre. Yeah, yeah, it's just so boring and flat. It serves as a warning more than anything. Yeah. Um, the Devil Inside was the film I was thinking of um, from 2012. And I haven't seen it, but apparently what so what happens is that it gets to a natural ending and they're on their way to the showdown, some characters, and the film suddenly stops and it comes up on the screen. It says, for more information... Uh, go to this website the film stops and you have to go to a website to find out more so that's that that was why it was controversial that's yeah I, I i've seen this film and i remember that happening because they're literally in a car and i remember mm-hmm. um i remember watching this with faye uh, who's just come up next to me to top up my drink and do you remember the poster she says yes this was they're in the car and it literally just ends and then some text comes up and directs you to websites and That's i remember staggering. Kind of i was so kind of like it, it was an average film anyway so i just thought well that was just a crap ending but that's the thing you get with horror films it's so easy to oh simon quarterman is in this film as well that's the one i always remember that man's name because he was <clears throat> he was in that film which called like ancestry or something like that and he's just remember he's he's miscast as a as like a hiker's boyfriend and he's supposed to be like 18 and he's he's actually 40 i went online he is a 40 year old man dressed as a teenager it's like steve buscemi in the <laughs> bloody yeah it's pathetic um yeah okay i'm gonna talk about another price they're all on prime uh this one is called captain chronos vampire hunter i'm not even sure this is a cult <laughs> film to be honest but it's from some people may have heard of it's captain chronos vampire hunter it's a cult british folk horror made in 1974 for hammer studios oh okay and it's the sole. When, when did the hammer finish then? I thought that was like an earlier, like 60s. Yeah, they were around in the 70s. I think they've been re. Uh, resur- they've been resurrected now. I'm not. Oh, I'm God. not sure if they're making like old fashioned style movies or not, but that'd be pretty cool. But anyway, yeah, this is 74. It's the sole directorial feature of Brian Clemens, who was more of a writer and producer. Um. So the story is that a vampire is stalking Bedfordshire, specifically, <laughs> specifically that I checked, specifically the woods between Uxbridge and East Burnham. Uh, and he, <laughs> he he bites his nubile victims, stealing their youth 
and condemning them to death. Um, so the locals, uh, they're terrorized um, by this vampire. And along comes Kronos, who's this swashbuckling, swashbuckling, swashbuckling vampire hunter to hunt down the vampire. And between investigating the murders, Kronos literally sleeps in the hay barn with a busty wench while his colleagues do all the investigation work. Uh, it is a, it, a film with a, a swift, light-hearted, swashbuckling tone. Something, so it's quite different to something like The Wicker Man or Blood on Satan's Claw or The Witchfinder General, um, which were around the same period. Uh, but there are some very creepy moments in this, like, because the opening scene, you get the, the rapid aging thing uh, is introduced. Um, so it's kind of creepy seeing some uh, like a kind of young teen girl or whatever suddenly become extremely old. Or there's like a, a really cool scene in this church where the shadow of a cross like turns downwards in a really menacing way. Or, yeah, the way that they show the massive aging thing is really quite effective. Sometimes sometimes they just use heavy makeup. Other times they just replace the teenage actress with like a grizzled middle aged man. So it's quite effective. Um it's got really nice production design. It's very atmospheric, even though everyone's hair and makeup just makes them look like people from the 1970s. Uh, there's, it's got a good sense of humour. There's this great scene where Kronos's like wily associate goes to meet these wealthy and suspiciously youthful couple at the stately house, and he just keeps narrowing his eyes and making sly jokes about how young they appear. It's just like so obviously stealing youth from people. <laughs> well, there's an amazing moment when Kronos himself is he's threatened by three thugs in a bar. And before they can pull their swords, before they can pull their swords, he has slashed their throats so quickly that by the time we cut back to him, he's already sheathed his sword and has a drink in his hand. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, it's a Guinness. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and there's this really darkly comical sequence where they're trying to this guy's about to transform into a vampire and they and he's like begging for them to kill him but like nothing works they're like trying a stake through the heart they try hanging him they try burning him just nothing's working so that was quite amusing and it's nicely lit and well filmed and there's some unusually dynamic tracking shots actually and this is cool it looks very cinematic for something which is clearly just you know filmed on location in british stately houses in bedfordshire um and it ends with a very enjoyable old school Errol Flynn type sword fight, which frankly is how every film should end. And, and it's also under 90 minutes. So all in all, this is a cracking film. This, um, yeah, this is making my British twitch. I gotta yeah, be fair. It's, it's so good. And he's like, I know, I'm not even sure what the actor's called the, he might be Scandinavian or something like that, but he's just like, he really looks the part. He's just like stupidly handsome and like constantly got his top off. And he's just got really, yeah, it's got very breezy tone and it's just a really easy watch much more. So, cause a lot of these, like I love folk, British folk horror, but stuff like Witchfinder General and Wicker Man, they can, they can be pretty heavy going, but this is much breezier. So I really enjoyed this. Should we, when we would talk about British folk horror, stuff like the Wicker Man, um, you know, the ritual, should we, we need to come up with a term for it. So should we call it something like a buffara? Something that rolls off the tongue like that. Yeah, that's, that makes perfect sense. That really, and never, really never, scans. 
never refer to it. So in future, when people sort of, oh, just listen to this podcast. When we say, I watched the Bafara. <laughs> what? What? What did you watch? Um, just by the way, while you were talking, then um, I am going to watch that film. What was it on, by the way? It was on Prime. Is it? Is it free? I believe it is. Um, I'm just going to read out. I've circled one, two, three, four, five, six, seven places that Kronos in Bedfordshire could may have uh, may have found the vampires. Yeah. Um, Bletchley, Leighton Buzzard, Stevenage, Letchworth Garden City, Migglesweyde, Bishop Stortford, and Saffron Walden. <laughs> yeah. So there's there are places around Bedford, Cambridge, Milton Keynes, that kind of area. Yeah. <laughs> He's yeah. checked them all. Yeah. The Vampire of Bigglesweed. <laughs> well, quite the same impact. If yeah, I so zoom, that's definitely I... Captain Kronos. Is that what it's called? Jesus. Yes, Captain Kronos. Yeah. I'm just sorry. I'm zooming into Bedford now. Yeah, they're not as funny as the names. You know? Southend, Renhold, Great Barford. Oh, my God. I'm bored just saying them. <laughs> uh, apart from Duck End, which is near Wilsted, of course. Horton Conquest. That's where you want to live, isn't Bloody it? Hell, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, the last one for me is a bit of a. To be honest, it's a little bit of a, an underwhelming one because you've got a couple more, haven't you? Um, so I'll make this. Yeah. I mean, I. Um, yeah. We would. Uh, yeah. I'll do a couple more. Yeah. Um, I watched Journey to the Mysterious Island with Dwayne Johnson in a bid to try and get my son to move away from episodic animated TV to a, like a movie. <laughs> so. A, I can watch it once and be done with it, and B, I can talk about it on the podcast because it's not on the Savalas. Um, so, have you seen this? Have you have you wandered across no. this movie? It sounds like a sequel. Because didn't he? Oh, he because it's called. Oh, I see what you mean. I was going to say, of course, it's a fucking sequel. It's called Journey Two: Colon The Mysterious Island. But I realised that you weren't being stupid because I said I watched Journey to the Mysterious Island, which could be. Yeah. Like yes, two, that's how I read it. Yeah, um, it's, I it presume you've seen Journey One. <laughs> I haven't even seen Journey the Band Live, Rupert. That's how far behind <laughs> the fans I am. Um, so no, this is Journey to Colon the Mysterious Island, um, and this is going to be a TMT, really, a bit of a two-minute trashing because uh, it's not a Bafara, unfortunately. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a sort of family. It's a really light-hearted, kind of national treasure-ish, um, but national treasure light uh, family adventure. Um, well, it's just during the Rick Johnson as the stepfather of a boy who is clearly in his late forties, but claiming to be a fifteen-year-old, who mm-hmm. believes his his grandfather, played by Michael Caine, who is a, a, an explorer, is still alive, even though everyone thinks he's. Hovis brown bread and he finds this map and i don't know what journey one or if there is a journey three um probably this the way this film kicks off right is it's very sort of you know child friendly so let me just have a quick look at this for a second i've got a yeah here we go they've got the books here so hmm He's trying to find where this mysterious island is because Jules Verne apparently in one of his books hints at this mysterious island with some sort of treasure or whatever. And he's in his room poring over this, this mystery that's been, you know, confused generations of his family. Dwayne Johnson comes in 
and has a bit of an argument with him and says, look, you need to listen to me. And, you know, I know I'm your stepdad, but, you know, I am, you know, I'm, I'm the man of the house. And can you stop being a little prick and listen to me every now and again? What's that you're looking at? Ah, oh, I'm trying to solve this. I'm trying to work out with a map island. Uh, this thing that this flummoxed <laughs> adventurers and code decipherers for decades and three generations of my family. And then by the time he's finished saying that, the rock's like, oh, I've sorted it then. Uh, and uh yeah and they literally solve solve where this place is within a two minute like montage effectively by ripping three pages out of a book and overlapping them um and that's it and off they go and then out of the blue Dwayne Johnson's like of course I will take you out of school and finance this trip to this extremely dangerous uncharted island off we trot and that's where the film starts off. But it can kind of be excused because it is a silly adventure, if you know what I mean. Right. Um, they turn up and they offer $1,000 to anyone in this, uh, I've forgotten what the country, or Palau, in Palau that will take them to this island. And no one will do it. No one will take them out there because it's too dangerous, Rupert. No one that is, apart from Louis Guzman <laughs> and his hot daughter. Um, hmm. So... It's then, you know, you've got like Louis Guzman as kind of this sort of um, silly, lovable rogue. The Rock being the Rock, especially mm. in this period of his of, of the Rock, the Rockness, uh, and then this sort of uh, the blossoming romance between the two teenagers. It's okay. It's very CG heavy. Michael Caine turns up and he doesn't even choose scenery. He just seems to just be having fun, which is quite nice. As like this sort of elderly explorer on the island okay. um, and they come across, they have to run away from lizards and um, various bloody things, giant wasps. There's an extended sequence where they're flying on the back of bees as okay. they're chased by hummingbirds, giant hummingbirds and volcanoes. And it's all fine. It's, I can imagine, right. And, and I think this about a lot of films like this, you know how some people really romanticize stuff like the Goonies and stand yes. by me. I can imagine this would just be, and you watch them and they're actually okay, this really sentimental teen adventures. Mm. I can imagine, like this probably, because it was made in 2012, was kind of frowned upon, but it's no worse than those things. It's probably lighter. It doesn't deal with such heavy-duty topics. And it's got like a lightness of touch, a bit of brevity to it. And it was a fun Sunday afternoon adventure to watch for the family. And I I would probably even watch it again if it was on. It didn't okay. bother me that much. It's a sequel to Journey to the Centre of the Earth. I didn't realise that. The Brendan Fraser one. I don't even know what that is. Is that a Jules Verne thing? Journey to the Centre it of the sounds Earth? Dis- yeah, it's, it sounds distinctly similar to is what you're describing to me. It's CG-heavy, uh, you know. Did the same author do like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, all that sort of yeah, stuff? Yeah, I think so, Jules Verne, yeah. Ju- yeah, I, yeah, I can imagine. Because yeah, they mentioned the Nautilus and Atlantis and all that stuff for this. It's, like I said, it's all well, it's National Treasury, it's all well and good. I'd watch it again. I might even watch the first one. Um, yeah well it's got Brenda Fraser in it so good um okay yeah I'm not sure about this one I don't know can I uh, mm. it's on I think it was on Prime there's a scene in it as well where the the rock plays um the ukulele and sings a song which is fine he's an entertainer he's a song and dance man isn't he he is, uh, yes, he is polymath. Um, so apparently, okay. apparently, these these birds actually, there, there are birds that eat bees in the real world. Okay. Surely this, surely this, are they big enough to ride on? 
can you well no i mean obviously everything's giant in this magical world but if i was a bird if i was a bird i wouldn't think i'd eat something that would hurt me no. mind you i do like spicy food so maybe it's the same thing um <laughs> sounds like a direct parallel yes um i will talk about another one on prime a film i've never seen before but heard much about a true cult movie called the boondock saints oh uh, i'm looking forward to what you before you even talk about this i have yes. to say right people that i everyone in my life that i have encountered that really likes this film i have ended up heavily disliking as a person as individuals right so so i'm really i'm really intrigued what you think about this so this is a uh, made in 1999 it's a vigilante action thriller from troy duffy whose only two films are this and a sequel in fact uh and it is the very definition of a cult movie because it made like 50 grand at the box office but tens (laughs) of millions on video it's about two irish brothers who want to clear Russian gangsters out of the neighborhood and they're vigilantes. So there's this ace detective played by Willem Dafoe who's on their case, but always one step behind. And that's pretty much the plot. Billy Connolly turns up too late to save the film because yes, made in 1999, this is an unwatchable Tarantino knockoff, tedious digressions and constant expletives do not a Tarantino script make uh, the actual structural conceit isn't that bad because what happens is that the cops led, of course, by Willem Dafoe will arrive at an aftermath. Uh, so just chaos has ensued and Dafoe will talk us through the theory of what happened. And then we cut back to see what actually happens. Sort of thing. So we see these brothers like shooting people and stuff and it. It's sometimes stylish, but generally looks cheap, like a TV show. And actually, all the style is in the form of excessive slow motion, which just, of course, removes any kinetic quality from the action scenes. And he throws in a few moments of monochrome there as well for a bit of unnecessary style. It's got terrible editing where, like, comedy moments are just lost due to bad timing. And some scenes just kind of fade out to nothing at a weird moment. It's very odd. And although there's, some, there's sometimes a, like a character will be looking off screen, right? And it will cut to another character. So you assume that they're looking at them. But then it turns out they're addressing a completely different character. And it's like, well, this is just eyeline matching. That's basic stuff, really. Um it's clearly meant to be funny, but I actually only laughed once. And that was when Willem Dafoe is talking through this crime scene. And he's got, like, victim's blood all over his hands. And he keeps touching his hair. And it keeps cutting away to the other cops. And they're all just slightly wincing every time he touches his hair with these bloody hands. So that bit was funny. I'm not even sure that was really meant to be, the, like, the key comedy moment in the film. It's for, for a while, like... Anytime Defoe is on the screen, the film picks up because he's basically Al Pacino's character from Heat, like super <laughs> confident and basically psychic. Uh, and then he becomes increasingly frustrated and the overacting really begins, um, <laughs> which is kind of I I can cope with it because it's Willem Defoe. I think it would piss me off if it was. 
you know, if they got someone like Dougree Scott or someone in there to do it, it but no, it works because it's Willem Dafoe because he's proper bonkers. And yeah, there's a real streak of misogyny in this film. Uh, I, th- the- I think Dougree Scott's too busy for, um, <laughs> he's too busy leaving messages for his agent for choosing yeah. him to be in Mission Impossible 2 as opposed to the new Wolverine. I think right. every day he calls his agent, <laughs> leaves a voice where that goes, Thank you. Um, yes, misogyny. The only notable women in this film are a large lady who gets punched, a couple of crackheads for the men to yell at, or a passed out hooker who gets molested in her sleep. So you uh, go. Nice. Uh, um, and it also has this uncomfortably obvious pro-vigilante narrative because it's basically saying the vigilantes are much more efficient than the law enforcement and actually Willem Dafoe's character it turns out to be just insanely jealous of these two brothers and he explicitly states that they're doing what he wishes he could do it's like beyond admiration and yeah Troy Duffy's is there, is there, is there a Batman sort of line there Batman where it's like you know oh he's he's they're acting he's acting outside the law but doing what the police wish they had the power to do yes but it's yeah but it's the policeman actually saying this saying I want to be like them like explicitly saying it. it's like okay it's not really any ambiguity here. this is very explicit so yeah I was going to say the uh, Troy Duffy's idea of drama is to have like characters constantly shouting fuck you at each other and then just cutting to another slow motion montage with wistful choral chanting over the top. And it gets to the point where there's a point where like Willem Dafoe is dressed as an escort girl writhing sensually on a bathroom floor. And I felt like my patience was spent by that point. And I just longed for it to end. And yeah. What a load of rubbish. Boondock Saints. Crap. Can we spend a couple of minutes on this? If that's cool with you. Sure. Um, Norman Reedus is here in this film. Is it <laughs> freshly washed? What <laughs> greasy rat bastard you say? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Greasy okay, I haven't really mentioned Billy Connolly. What you say? <laughs> yeah, just looks knackered all the time. Um, <laughs> Billy Connolly is in this as like this crazy hitman guy, and I guess it's meant to be like casting against type, but he doesn't really make an impact. It's just you just think. He's miscasting. In all fairness, this is the late nineties where Billy Connolly was just rocking up in a lot of things randomly. Yeah, that's scenarios. true. Actually, yeah. Um, Sean Patrick Flannery. This this film. Everyone I know who is, and I apologise if some of our friends listen to this and they're big fans of this film, but uh, it, it, yeah, everyone I know who really really supports this film has just been someone I usually find unpleasant, and mm. I and I think it's because I've always found it a character flaw when. Um, someone is like really defensive of a film because it's like it's their thing they discovered it it's their little thing and you think it's just it's just you might you might like it but you don't have to get militant about something that's just well from what you said a bad film um (laughs) and especially because this would have come from like the sort of late vhs early dvd era where it's like you know like you say uh, it's the worst aspects of a cult film isn't it this because it's a bad it's a bad lazy poorly edited film made by a cunt and i say that <laughs> uh, as 
if you read about Troy Duffy, he is just an absolute joke of a man. If I really? if I made if I made a film right or released an album or something, and then I was such a complete fist that two documentaries about me being a noble made about it, I might <laughs> reassess my character and think oh, I, might, I don't think I'm a very nice talented man. I don't. Um, but yeah, there's a sequel to this. Can you watch it for me? Oh my goodness, you really. The sacrifices I make for this podcast. Um, do I have to? Is it? They they're making a third one. Is the sequel already? The sequel exists, right? The sequel's been up for a little while, yeah. Right. Okay. I think they're making a third one as well. Because I'm just gonna I'm typing this in just watch for you because I mean some of the stuff I watched House of VHS so you will never surpass the stuff I what the efforts <laughs> I made for this podcast. Um, of course, Boondock Saints too. Billy Connolly back in it. Why wouldn't he? Right. It's available on. Apple TV for three fifty, so you might have to buy a DVD. Probably, that. Um, probably from really Germany. Knowing you, I'm glad yeah. you made this film because I've always sort of hated it from a sort of secondary aspect of never actually seeing it. I, I, I've always hoped I wouldn't like it, and uh, I'm glad that now I don't. I don't have. You would to hate it. it. Mm. Yeah. Is it is it a film that was kind of like the 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 whole. Danced across the seven psychopaths line where you, it's a film that is trying to be cool. It's so desperate. Yes. To be cool. Yeah. It's a really real try hard kind of movie. Uh, like the the pivotal scene with Willem Dafoe where he's literally just like, just like a choral chanting in the background and he's he's almost like enraptured in this kind of this orgasmic writhing as he imagines the bullets whizzing through the air and stuff it's like it, you could tell he's just shouting at will and come on more more i want more and it's like you know it's all well and good he gets away with it because it's will and defoe but i mean this is just bad it's it doesn't style for the sake of style and it style that completely undermines any excitement uh so yeah it's it's not a good movie I've never been so happy in the 78 episodes. That's what, what's that like? Over, over, you know, 150 hours of this podcast that you've called something shit. I feel vindicated. <laughs> I feel like my my internal like movie compass is, is still working. Um, and the fact they made a sequel, and the mm. fact that the director's such a prick, and the fact that it stars a greasy rat-faced puffy-eyed twat as well. I just, I feel so good. <laughs> it's really made your day. It's one of yeah. my favorite, one of my favorite reviews of yours. Uh, it, makes, was, what, it makes me feel better that? to know that Troy Duffy is a fist, so that's good. You know, he's, uh, he's, um, if you read about him on, like, just on Wikipedia, it's so clear that he's just a complete fist. Um, yeah, the, the, my two of my favorite reviews have been that one, this one, and um, what's the one you watch with that bloke who's got three names? We talked about it. He was in the um, Doctor Patrick Kelly. No, <laughs> Sean Patrick Flannery. Um, the, the we talked about it last episode as well. The um, the movie How to Make an American Quilt or whatever it was called with yeah. Last Blood. Days of American Crime. Yes, that's it. Oh. Yes, that's the one. Wow, slightly Jesus. different. Um, yeah, um, that's really that's really cheered me up. Um, have you got any more to throw at me? Because I'm I'm still I've got a full full glass of Glenlivet here. Um, so um, I can do a, a quick two minute. Um, and then we can slide into the very challenging Arkansas, I guess. Um, yeah. I watched Disturbia on Prime as well. 
With it, is this the one with um, Jennifer Lopez in it? No, it's the one with Shia LaBeouf. And Jennifer Lopez? No. <laughs> what, with it, is he just looking at someone he fancies in this? Uh, the, he does look at someone he fancies in this, yeah. It's not Jennifer Lopez, though. Um, what am I thinking of, then? I'm not sure. Maybe it's just a case of not that one. I'm not sure. Um this is a 2007 lock-in thriller from DJ Caruso, also oh, known for Eagle Eye and the, the Sultan Sea. He also worked as producer on The Hard Way Below. Good. Um, Shia LaBeouf plays a happy teen who loses his dad and then becomes a troubled teen. He ends up punching his Spanish teacher and then he's placed under house arrest so he can't move beyond 100 feet of his house without his ankle beeping and the police arriving. So he proceeds it's to spend... This sounds his... a bit rear window-ish. It's very rear window-ish. He proceeds to spend his time watching the neighbours, including the hottie next door, and David Morse, um, <laughs> who may or may not be a murderer. Um, so it's like, will he uncover the truth like... of this guy's crimes, or is he just going crazy and the guy is perfectly innocent? That kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, so obviously this is an update on Rear Window or Brian De Palm's Body Double brought into the noughties. It's a remix of various ideas done better elsewhere, of course. Very fast moving and very stupid. I kind of feel like this is what, you know, they're talking about like AI filmmaking. Like obviously they can, they've got AI scripts, but also like if AI would just completely make a movie, it would kind of look like this. It's sort of like, the prompt would be something like make, make a movie that will appeal to young teenagers, for example. And yeah, rear, rear window with without <laughs> straight to straight to fifties. What was his name? The killer in that Ray, the guy uh, who played Raymond Burr. Burr, that was it. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. So that actually, yes, teenagers. It, it, it's it's far more bikini money shots than there are horror moments in this. Put it this way. And it's got this like self-justifying voyeurism where Charlotte Booth makes a speech to the girl um, about why he's watching her all the time. And, right. and then she says, well, that's either very creepy or very sweet. And then she kisses him, of course. So, yes, we know where she falls in that one. Uh, but in a way, actually thinking about it, it does capture teenagehood, teenage world quite accurately because... If a 17-year-old kid were to have infinite free time with a pair of binoculars, they really would be perving over the chick next door, and they really would be winding themselves up about neighbourhood weirdos. Uh, and you can see here why Shia LaBeouf was such a hot ticket as a child actor, because he does have charisma and charm and an obvious sense of commitment to the role. It's just not a particularly well-written or well-edited film. It starts out as quite an intriguing mystery thriller, which promises twists and curveballs, but actually delivers none of that and just descends into a series of messily edited wrestles in the dark between mismatched adversaries. And it hits all of the narrative beats you'd expect and delivers them in the blandest way imaginable. It, it, it sounds know, like it, the, yeah, sorry. The gl I get the same vibes from the, the glass, the glass house. 
Yeah. You know, where it just feels like a, like you say, a film made by committee or made by AI, however you want to put it, where yeah. the film starts off and it involves teenagers who might, like with that, I think in The Glass House, it was Jennifer Lawrence, if I'm thinking, right. remembering yeah. correctly. And then with, with this, it's Shia with two very talented actors who obviously have good careers ahead of them, but you watch it and it's just like they're in a film and it's just, it's, they're obviously too young to have any say in anything and they're just shit films. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that I mean, it's too, in. this is too inoffensive to be real shit, isn't it? Even the title, even like the whole, like, oh, it's like suburbia, but it's disturbia. You can imagine some yeah. stoned producer putting that forward. And yep. it, yeah, it's a kind of, and I know this is slightly moving away from movies, but, but a lot of the dialogue I'm play, I'm sitting through in Starfield at the moment on the Xbox, mm. it, 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 it's the whole thing we talk about where it just feels like a load of blokes in their 40s and 50s just trying to write witty dialogue for teenagers. And you're like, it, it, yeah. yeah, it just, it, that, that this is a film that is very much of a time and doesn't, and I really like um, David Morse, the, but yeah. it's not one of those films you think, oh, I really like David Morse, I'll watch Disturbia, because it's... No, no, and it, this is the kind of film that, made even 10 years later we'll be going straight to netflix to be honest uh david morse yes he is the creepy neighbor but he plays it with such menace that there's absolutely no room for ambiguity at all because he's basically just telling us instantly with his eyes with all the kind of cutaway reaction shots and glares he's just telling us he's guilty straight from the start so there's not even any fun with that premise at all like it this is not this film is not hot trash but there's no, no reason to watch it. it unless you were to introduce a dumb teenager to the basics of mystery thrillers and he wanted to maybe ease them into De Palma or Hitchcock but I don't know I think just go for the real thing really it's a shame that is because like with David Morse you think about him as something like the crossing guard like he mm. you mentioned his eyes he's got such expressive eyes and he can be so good yeah as, and he as, can as, be like, so as, kind of avuncular and warm and it's like yeah but in this he's just he just seems like a brute and it, it it it's like it's like the filmmaker didn't filmmakers didn't want to have any kind of like uh fun with the premise at all that he could be innocent because as soon as like you actually kind of meet him and he's claiming his innocence right so he's claiming his innocence to like Charlie's mother and it will just cut to him and he'll be like glaring at Shia LaBeouf and like in a really evil way like as if to say no I really have done this I am a murderer and stuff it's like well if only only there was a voiceover that kicked in when he looked at Shia LaBeouf um that seems like the most interesting aspect of the film instantly kicked out the door well it's always is the most interesting aspect isn't it like that that kind of sense of like genuinely bringing the audience along to the point where they start thinking, well, actually, maybe the protagonist is just mistaken. So they've, they've, they done, they've done a lazy mid 2000s update of yeah. like a really seminal thriller, Rear Window, and they've instantly kicked the most interesting aspect up the arse. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> glad that happened. <laughs> yeah, glad that's what. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so Disturbia, don't bother with that. Um, the film I was thinking of, by the way, was the with when I thought Jennifer. I thought I've just mismatched, um, mixed them up in my head. The Boy Next Door um, with right. Jennifer Lopez. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I, I completely um, mixed those two films up. But I'm not going to watch this too. But I like Shia LaBeouf, our boy Shia. But yeah, uh, especially in the mid 2000s, 
it's why I really why I enjoyed revisiting uh, Dog Soldiers so much is because it just feel felt like a bit of a nadir for horror. Yeah, it wasn't the best. so many like remakes right. and revisits and remasters. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the worst kind of trash remakes, wasn't it? Because you got a lot of like that was when Nightmare on Elm Street was remade and when Rob was it Rob Zombie did his Halloweens around then as well. Crap. Yeah, yeah. Well, you just reminded me of um, just thinking about how much I I didn't realize how much I enjoyed that premise when, you know, someone witnesses something and it's like, did they or didn't they? And mm-hmm. the most recent one of that, I, it's a Spanish horror film. We've I know I think it's from two thousand and five as well actually. Oh, that we've both seen the one yeah. with it, the la- the landlord. Yeah. You know the one I mean, and yeah. it's called like sleep sleep tight. Yeah. And that is a great, like, what, what's happening? Who can I trust? And that is an example of that genre done so well. And when it's done so well, that is a tense hour and a half. Yeah. And when it's done poorly, it's it's such a shame that, you know, they wasted David Morse. Yeah. I think probably the problem with Disturbia is it doesn't have any, uh, like, I don't know what you call it, like horror grammar. Like, it's like, it's like DJ Caruso doesn't understand like what makes horror or mystery thrillers scary or he's trying to undermine it all the time I don't know and just try to get to the bits where they're just wrestling in badly I, edited fight scenes I, I, I tell you what I, what I found recently is obviously as, as time becomes more precious and we you know we're now like so we've done over 150 hours of this podcast and coming up to the 80th episode and I'm watching films and what I I'd, I'd love to know how many films I've seen in my life, but I don't know. I find that a film that is just okay is now to me completely and utterly inexcusable. <laughs> and and I find that the more I watch, the more like my I'll wander and I, and I might like fast forward five, 10 minutes here and there. Yes, just like, yes. no, it's nothing's happening. And and I, it, you, I wonder where once when we would come across these, sort of hidden not so much hidden gems but these average horror films and we'd sit through them because they were horror because it was fresh Mm -hmm. there's now so much content out there and so many films being made that yeah you know watching something like (laughs) say the title watching something like winnie the pooh blood and honey and that feeling after like 20 minutes where you realize i'm wasting my time i know that i know that this isn't going to get better and i'm not going to get anything from this i'm just going to sit here and be kind of half bored i find them kind of inexcusable now so when i do end up watching things like um what did i watch last episode we talked about um the alternate mm-hmm. with you know the the world's you know only racist dvd cover <laughs> and this odd it's nice to talk about the bizarre moments in films and just bring them up and hopefully bring some joy to people or raise some hidden gems like last shift but yep. also maybe interesting mainstream films like like barbie but I think my tolerance for for like bad horror is really bottomed out. Yes. And I I I, th- I don't think I'm going to get it back because I, if a film is bad and it's amusing and it's worth talking about, but a film that is just boring, I've got a feeling mm-hmm. that I'm just gonna I'm probably going to start bringing into the you know to Kino Kingdom a little bit that I just turned it off, <laughs> which is something I've never done. I've always felt like I you know we do a movie podcast. I have to see this through, but I think I've kind of hit my limit with that now. It's just going to turn into uh, like a series of conversations about 
like how far through movies we got. Uh, this was a 35 minute. Probably <laughs> sick of its mediocrity. Yeah. And a two two minute crash. You'll be like, I made it 20 minutes into this. Yeah, it's and maybe we'll come across some. You know, if people want to email us, themenotalkoutlook.com or um, follow us on on Twitter at Kino Kingdom. Um, it, it's and they say no, no, give it time or whatever. I will, but I I do think I've I've hit a bit of a wall with it. Where I just think I can't time be bothered. Time is precious, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I, 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 I get that. Yeah, and but I suppose from the perspective of because we're of a certain age, from the perspective of younger people, may see something like what's it called? Winnie the Pooh, blood and bollocks, bollock, blood and honey. Um, <laughs> Alan then, Blood and Billy Bollocks. <laughs> they may watch that, um, and because if they haven't seen they don't have the the backlog in their brain like we do then um they might not have seen some is so many of those sorts of average films it may seem pressure to them as mm. possible uh so that is oh, a possibility. That, maybe and, and it's that, just and, sheer exhaustion your sponge is full yeah i think it's undoubted that you know there's someone there's some 16 year olds hosting a podcast saying oh my god i watched this film and it was it was brilliant crazy, just, yeah. you laugh at it oh it's just it's so it's a winnie the pooh but but then you you don't realize that it's just a thin veneer over you know i've ten thousand other films that are just complete clones of it um so yeah, I just wanted to announce that that I'm retiring from average films, <laughs> and I will longer just going to watch entire films. Because the thing, the way I see it is that I, I was watching. It was Winnie the Pooh that did it that kind of broke me, and I thought, this is just shit. This is just a boring film, and and I thought, I'll sit through this one, and then I'm next time. Then I'm done. And then I'm done, and I'm going to kill myself <laughs> in front of my family. Um, I'm gonna um. I'm going to watch this in the, in the next time this happens, the next time I get this feeling of like, I'm not, I'm not enjoying this and I'm 40 minutes in, it's not going to improve. I'm just going to just start another film that I might enjoy and might get something out of. Yeah. Unfortunately for you, the next film you're going to watch is Boondock Saints 2 All Saints Day. So. Are we going to do the Arkansas? Yeah. Let's do the Arkansas. So. It's um, Simon Pegg to Peter Sellers. Or vice no, versa. No, yes, that's right. Um, oh, do you know what? I could have made a joke then because isn't vice versa a Kevin Klein film? If I was quicker off the mark, Judge then... Reinhold. <laughs> Sorry, I'll edit this out so I look clever. <laughs> uh, vice versa, another Judge Reinhold films. That'll be seamless. Don't worry. Everyone. I don't know. It might have had Kevin Klein as well. I can't remember. Oh, um, we haven't had a joke from Max today. Oh my! Oh my goodness you, me! Is it? Man, is that going to be? Can you? Um, you, why don't you, have you got any Arkansas stars to read yes, out? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, will you read yeah, that yeah. out and I'll, I'll plow through and find an amazing um, joke for us. I, I know, I've also got to apologise on behalf of um, Utah Smith, who sends in the uh, movie rhyming Steve Inland. He's apologised, he's been too busy to do in this episode, but he's got one coming and it involves falling over in a sweet shop. So I'm sure that we are all on tenterhooks. After that description for the next one, um, uh, we love you all. So yes, so the Arkansas was uh, Simon Pegg to Peter Sellers. Do you want me to? Do you want me to go first here? Actually? Yes, yes, so we yes. Can compare my work against it. I managed to get this down to four, I think, 
four steps, but I'm not 100% sure I'm correct on one of the steps. Isn't that so, four steps? That's what they use during pregnancy, isn't it? Four steps. Um, Peter Sellers is in Doctor Strange Love with George C. Scott, who's in The Exorcist 3 with Brad Dourif, who is in Lord of the Rings 2, Two Towers with Andy Serkis, who I think was in Burke and Hare with Simon Pegg. I think they were the two in it, Andy Serkis and Simon Pegg. Um, but I'm not 100% on that. So if so, then that's four steps, I think. I'm thinking of um, I'm thinking of that bloody early 2000s film, this uh, Plunkett and McLean, with Johnny yeah. Lee Miller, and yeah, I've completely lost that. Do you want to check see if you're actually yeah, right? Let's, let's check live on air. Burke and Hare. I remember Burke and Hare being directed by John Landis and not being particularly funny. Of course, Kathy Burke and Norman Hare, of course. <laughs> um, Simon Pegg and Andy Serkis. Ooh. Who would have thought that? Uh, yep, confirmed. Uh, okay, so I've got this is an audio entry for the Arkansas from Utah Smith. So let's just streamline that. We've got Peter Sellers to Christopher Plummer in a Pink Panther movie, to Knives Out with Chris Evans, to an Avengers film with Chris Hemsworth, to um, the first Star Trek reboot with Simon Pegg, the J.J. Abrams one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I really like it when people, our, our listeners are so lazy that they, <laughs> they're like, ah, oh, to a Star Wars film. It's one of them. Star Trek or some franchise. I love that kind of, um, yeah, a listlessness. <laughs> so it's going to be going. Um, so, yeah, so that was a four-step from Utah. Max has said KKOK. So Pete Sellers is in more than one Pink Panther, as is Bobby Wagner. He is in several Austin Powers films, including Goldmember with Tom Cruise fleetingly, who's in a bunch of Mission Impossible films with Simon Pegg. Again, I love the vagueness of the uh, the vagueness of the franchise. Again, Dream Theater have some cracking albums. So that's another that's another four step. Um, Laszlo says, hello, darling. I have a four stepper. Peter Sellers was in Casino Royale. Not that one, unless you were thinking of that one. Isila Andrus, who was in Doctor No with Sean Connery, who was in Indiana Jones with Harrison Ford, who was in The Force Awakens with Simon Pegg. This is franchiserous, this episode. Everything is a franchise. Hopefully someone will mention <laughs> Plunkett and McLean soon. Um, uh, so, and then Ben says, right, here comes a two-stepper. Get out. Okay, here we go. So I'm going to do a little drum roll for this. Simon Pegg was in Star Trek with Deep Roy, the Oompa Loompa chap from the Willy, Mo- Willy Wonka movie with Johnny Depp in, which right. was crap. Gene Wilder crew represent, who was in the Pink Panther Strikes Again with Peter Sellers. Okay, so, oh, right, so, so, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Brought, yeah, two yeah. stepper. Gosh. And then and there's a, there's a there's a postscript. I don't mind telling you that one made my head hurt. <laughs> so uh, probably because they've been drinking all day. I did shoot uh, shoot. I did shoot Ben. I did shot Ben earlier on by uh, uh, stating that I'd never seen the original Willy Wonka or the remake. I've got a feeling I've seen enough of the Gene Wilder Willy Wonka to sort of 
state i've seen it in bits over the decades but i've never sat down and watched it it was always on by nance for some reason film of the week film of the week for me well my choice of four of barbie winnie the pooh blood and honey journey to cole on the mysterious island and last shift I was really tempted to say Barbie, right? But Barbie's obviously a big film. I'm going to say Last Shift. And I, and I want people yeah. to watch uh, Malum because I want to know what a nine-year-old remake by this. Do. Um, what's your film of the week, Rupert? Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's the one that got me yeah. going. So what are we going to do then for the um, for the next Arkansas? Oh, yeah, we got to think of that, don't we? Okay, what do we watch? What do we watch? Okay, let me... Oh, can I can I, can I? I choose the first one? Okay, you choose the first one. Go on, then. Can I choose greasy, choppy haircut, puffy-faced, <laughs> greasy rat bastard Norman Reedus to... Yes. Uh, to... See Thomas Howe. <laughs> Good luck. That's absolutely fine. I hope someone mentions the sweeper. Um, so um, yeah, should we? Um, I mean, I think a, uh, a good way to end the podcast might be on a, a joke from a classic joke from Max here, classic movie related joke. Okay. And anything more to say before we plunge into the abyss of this joke? No, I'm I'm ready to laugh. I've got my I've got a little a, a snifter of Glenlivet left with with ice because it's cold because it's hot and I'm I'm ready to enjoy this. Ryan Reynolds was so committed to his superhero role, he legally changed his name by Deadpool. Wasn't that the subtitle to one of the Dirty Harry films? Deadpool. Was it Deadpool? Yeah, it was the Deadpool. <laughs> yes, it was. Which, which which Dirty Harry film? Deadpool. The second one's Deadpool. Magnum Force, is it? Or is that the third one? I can't remember. Right, the, so the yeah, the Deadpool is... Yeah, it's the... Oh, hang on. The Deadpool... Not to be confused with Deadpool film is a 1988 Dirty Harry film. Oh, Hang it's on, like it's just good. It's not okay. even oh Dirty Harry in the Deadpool. It's not even Dirty Harry five. Right, you said uh, anyway. Sorry, sidetrack. Then you said Max was going to send a joke. Uh, that that was it. That was yeah. That was it. It's a joke. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed the podcast, and uh, I'll Rupert. I'll, I'll see you for the next one. And let, do yeah. you want anything you want to? Do you want to say anything about that joke? No, I think it speaks for itself. Jokes, humour is such a flexible concept, isn't it? You can really <laughs> approach it from so many angles. It really is a broad range. Yeah. Sometimes mm. you laugh. Sometimes you laugh, and then sometimes you. It's there are other responses, aren't there? There are. Hey. Hey, it's Tia Carrere, and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys.